announcement one of our guests is coming but they're going to be uh 10 or so minutes late so they will join the panel uh when they come in uh but without more ado i would like you to hand over to yet uh another star in the bbc parliament firmament and that is mark darcy mark Wow. Well, uh, I've left my anorak of office in the, uh, in the guest room. Uh, well, good morning, everybody. This session uh, is going to be a forward-looking session looking at uh, what happens next in the tangled saga of Parliament and Brexit. Uh, and as, uh, as Tim was saying, one of our guests will be joining us in a little while. But uh, um, on my uh, right here, uh, Dr Richard Whitaker of the University of Leicester. Uh, a, he's published research on diverse subjects, including the powers of parliamentary select committees and indeed on the workings of the European Parliament. So he'll have uh, plenty to tell us during the course of this session. Uh, Lord Jay of Ewam. Ewam. Uh, this is one of the great challenges that I've been researching all morning, is the correct pronunciation of this, and I still haven't got it right. Lord Jay is a crossbench life peer, a former ambassador to Paris, a former permanent undersecretary in the Foreign Office, was Sherpa to Tony Blair at a series of G8 conferences, and is someone who really understands the business of international negotiation and presumably what traction Parliament might or might not have on it. Angela Smith, Baroness Smith of Basildon, is the Labour leader in the House of Lords. Her ambitions include um, playing the saxophone alongside Bill Clinton and bringing down the government. <laughs> and she is perhaps the most powerful Labour politician in Westminster in the sense that she's operating in a uh, hung chamber where Labour can occasionally, if it enlists enough allies, win the occasional vote. So, with no further ado, and hoping that Angus will be able to join us fairly shortly, um, my first question is, looking at what's happened since the election, can our panellists discern what the government is now trying to achieve? What kind of Brexit on the spectrum between, if you like, living in a granny annex to the EU and having some kind of Singapore on Thames deregulated offshore competitor, all the many options in between on that spectrum? Lord Jay. Well, um, I, I would have said the government uh, wants to appear to be completely separate from the European Union. Uh, but that when the time comes to have been completely separate from the European Union, it will a number of rather important things want to be working very closely alongside it, because that is what our, um, our economy, our security, our uh, trade and so on requires. But whether it will achieve that, I don't know. And clearly there are within the government, there are uh, forces which are trying to push it in another direction to be rather more separate from the European Union, then I think probably the centre of gravity of the government is. So would that be, for example, much more separation on a variety of economic areas from the single market, but at the same time close security cooperation? Well, in our security cooperation, which I've been a bit involved in uh, with the committee I chair, uh, I think that, um, that, that for, for all our security and for the security of our EU uh, uh, EU neighbours, there needs to be very close cooperation. The problem for the government is that you cannot be a member of, if you're not a member of the European Union, you can't be a member of Europol and Eurojust and the other organisations which we really need to be close to. So the question is how we negotiate a relationship which means that the practitioners are really in touch with each other day by day by day, minute by minute by minute as they are at 
uh, as they are at present. How you negotiate that? It seems to me that that is something which the government is going to have to negotiate, but at the moment it is not quite in that position. Uh, we've just been joined, as you'll have seen, by our fourth panelist. Um, he's someone who uh, once tutored the Leader of the House on the correct pronunciation of his constituency over a glass of single malt scotch, and I'm hoping that I can... Well, it costs you too. Well, better and better, because I'm bound to get it wrong again. He's the MP for Nahahilan and R, uh, otherwise known as the Western Isles. Angus Brendan McNeil, Chair of the International Trade uh, Select Committee, and of course uh, SNP MP. Uh, Angus, we're just discussing um, what kind of Brexit you think the government's going after. I'll come to the other panellists to give you a, a second to assemble your thoughts. But Richard, what do you discern as the government's objectives? Well different from what they appear to be uh, some time ago, I guess that, yeah, a shift away from a common rulebook uh, approach and an agreement that looks more like the one that Canada has with um, the EU. Um, but alongside that, um, I think bespoke agreements the government will go for on security and issues like that that are, that are kind of important um, to the UK's national interests. Um, but I think that, yeah, there's a, there's a degree of, of uh, flexibility within the political declaration on what might happen next. And so one of the things that it's important to think about how to scrutinise these different uh, possibilities. Um, but that all depends on how close the relationship is. Andrew? I think there's a tension here for government between getting Brexit done and getting Brexit right. And it's this sort of ideology, ideology versus pragmatism in many ways, because things like the European arrest warrant, the government said it won't be part of the European arrest warrant, but to negotiate anything different is going to take a long time, it's very difficult to do. Um, I think at the weekend they announced it wouldn't be part of the aviation agreement. And again, the consequences of that and the cost of not being part of that are quite complex. So I think, you know, you're right, Lord Jane, that being very showing how distinct and different we are, not having the common rule book you spoke about, but at the same time, pragmatism will tell them yeah. there are parts where they have to be <coughs> closely aligned with the EU in order to make sense um, for our country. So I think this is a tension for government. I'm not quite sure where that balance is going to go. Um, I also think the time scale that we've got, you know, events, dear boy, events, there's a very tight time scale for the government to get this right and get these negotiations done. At the moment, both here and in European countries, there's going to be such a huge focus on the coronavirus that it may be difficult to do all the negotiations in the time they want. And the government at some point is going to have to make a judgment. Can we do everything we want to do in the time we've got, while we've also got this huge international focus on managing coronavirus socially, economically, um, and politically, I suppose. So I think there's a tension at the heart of government. I still fear that we could crash out without all these issues being resolved. And I think that is one of the big <coughs> nervous um, issues for us, and that's a point that you made about the scrutiny of how we manage this through Parliament of being helpful, rather you know, not being obstructive in any way, but actually looking at some of the detail and how the government perceives that, if they perceive it as being helpful or just a nuisance. But I think the jury's still out on where the government's going to end up at the moment. Angus, where do you think the government is going to try and end up? Yeah, um, I'm, uh, I'm not mic'd up, so I hope this microphone's working. Um, I'm just back from, from Bayes. Uh, to answer your question, Mark, I think. Uh, and billing from what uh, Baroness Smith was saying there. Um, thinking back on some of the evidence sessions we've had from the International Trade Committee, there are essentially a three big uh, r regulatory setters in the world, and mainly 
It's the USA, the European mm. Union, and to some extent China. And interestingly, within the USA, if you hit California, because California has the highest regulations, that basically runs the show for the United States of America. Uh, so the, the movement away from EASA is an example of the problems that the UK is going to find itself uh, coming up with. Um, I, I, in the European... Aviation. Aviation. Thank you. Somebody in order. Yeah. Um, the um, other part I think that it's worth bearing in mind was sort of what Leo Varadkar's interview with uh, Laura Kunzberg, that the UK will go for the low-hanging fruit first, or what they perceive as low-hanging fruit, but unfortunately it's going to be the high-hanging fruit uh, for other people, and that is immediately kicks off a negotiation, and immediately kicks time, immediately then, in the year we've got with uh, coronavirus taking up a good fraction, a third, a quarter, a third, maybe more of the year creates problems. But I think underlying all this, we've got to remember, uh, there is no good Brexit. Brexit is going to cost 6% of GDP. It's a forfeiture of 6% of GDP. An American trade agreement is a 0.2% gain to GDP, 1 30th. Now, you could say, well, let's get 30 American trade agreements, and that would be fine, except the secondary factor should bring in at this point is the United States is a quarter of global GDP. So to make up this gap, we need to get uh, 30 countries with the United States, 30 quarters. Now, to get 30 quarters, we need about seven and a half planets to make up the damage that Brexit is going to do. Uh, so there is no good Brexit. Uh, Baroness Smith highlighted a, a good example there. Uh, there are many more to highlight. What we are in is damage limitation, as, as far as I can see. And I wished every meeting I start as chair of international trade, I usually ask whoever a meeting, give me the good news. And apart from Tate and Lyle and Sugar, uh, that's a very brief opening sentence with a very brief answer. Right, well, let's talk a little bit about how Parliament might exert some traction on all of this. Uh, a quick acronym watch. Uh, the people may start talking about CRAG, which isn't a reference to any kind of cliff edge. It's the Constitutional Reform and Government Governance Act of 2010, which is where the rules for parliamentary scrutiny of treaties are now set out. And this is primarily going to be a matter of managing international treaties now, isn't it? Uh, can Parliament set the rules in advance, mandate negotiators? It's not something governments are desperately keen to do, usually. No. I mean, I think it's worth thinking... Uh, parliamentary scrutiny in the past has been based on documents produced from uh, Brussels Commission documents, and we've looked, and it's been a very structured form of parliamentary scrutiny, and that has rather gone away now, so it's going to be a less structured form of parliamentary scrutiny of, um, of the negotiations as we, as, as, as we look, as we look, um, as we look forward. But, I mean, there is in the Withdrawal Act, there is some provision, uh, Section 29 of the Withdrawal Act does empower scrutiny committees of both houses to report on EU legislation uh, that raise matters of, and I quote, vital national interests. Now, those of you who are uh, EU nerds will know that that is Luxembourg compromise language. I, that may just be a coincidence, but that is, uh, that is in the Withdrawal Act. And I think at the moment what's happening is both the Lords and the Commons are working out how the committees which are going to scrutinise the negotiations and scrutinise the relationship with the EU after the negotiations are over are going to be structured. That is going on at the, um, uh, at the moment. I should, perhaps I could, could I give just a little plug for a a rather attractively uh, named report, report pursuant to Section 29 of the European Union uh, Withdrawal Agreement 2020. Uh, this, is the first, this is the first House of Lords committee report, uh, which uh, is actually on the conduct of the negotiations. And it's an example of what I think will happen from now on, 
which is both in the Commons and the Lords, the committees will be saying, well, this really does matter, that we need to produce a report on that, we need to have uh, witnesses, and we need then to have a debate on the floor of the House. So I think there will be, um, there will be, uh, there will no doubt be a constant tension between government and uh, uh, and, um, and Parliament, as Parliament tries to ensure that there is proper scrutiny of the negotiations as they, as they take place. Michael Gove is likely to be coming to the Lords Committees in the next um, few weeks. We don't know for certain, but we are hopeful. Uh, but I think there will be this sort of give and take. Angela Smith, if, if Parliament doesn't like something that's happening in these negotiations, does it actually have any ability to do anything other than say, boo hiss, we don't like this? It's going to be really limited. You've mentioned Crag, so it has to be debated after. It's a hurdle, but it's not a stop. Um, it, I think a lot of this will depend on the government's attitude. And my impression of the government's attitude so far is they don't really want that engagement. You know, we're in a completely different phase from where we were phase one, where we had Article 50 negotiations, we had reports, um, we had all the such legislation being transposed into UK law into UK law, so there were committees, new committees set up to look at that. There were a lot of different things happening. We had the meaningful vote. Those kind of mechanisms aren't there in phase two. Um, I wrote an article some time ago now, but I think it's even more relevant. I said the government on this issue loathes scrutiny and fears challenge, and I think that remains. And we hear a lot from the government when we've raised this prior to this stage of taking it forward and we'd say what's the mechanisms for scrutiny ministers will make statements ministers will make reports mm. i think we have to understand what scrutiny means scrutiny isn't just listening answering a few questions which across the dispatch box you may or may not get an answer to it's actually engaging with the debate and trying to be useful in some way with that debate um, now the government could see parliament as a resource um, there's no evidence of that yet now there's a new phrase, I think, that's entered the parliamentary vocabulary, um, and that is the phrase clean bill. When we had the Article 50 bill, there were two amendments from the Lords. One was on EU nationals, and the other one was on having a meaningful vote. That was voted for overwhelmingly from all parties, supported by the House of Lords. When it went to the House of Commons, Theresa May's view was, well, we agree with that, and indeed, both of them eventually happened, but we don't want it in this bill, we want a clean bill. On the, current, the new withdrawal act that went through just a few weeks ago, it was a really interesting thing happened that I've never seen happen before in my time in Parliament. And that was, there was a particular issue around legal precedence um, that was a flaw in the bill. We recognised that, ministers recognised that, and there was a draft amendment put through from the opposition parties. James Mackay, probably the most senior conservative legal mind on the Tory benches, also put an amendment down to help the government get out of a hole, and the government would have accepted it. And in fact, the minister even drafted something, and you know, we agreed that's the way to solve this problem. It doesn't go as far as we would go, but it would help resolve that particular problem. The government wouldn't do it, even for James Mackay, even for their minister, who then wasn't in the chamber for the debate, because they said, we want a clean bill. Now, if the idea of legislation going forward is that we never want amendments because we want a clean bill, that, to me, doesn't indicate the government really wants to engage with Parliament. So I think we'll see two things, probably. I think we'll see 
the scrutiny moving away from the floor of Parliament. And most people who watch follow politics lightly think scrutiny is Prime Minister's question time. There's nothing further from scrutiny than Prime Minister's question time. Um, but you'll see the kind of reports um, that Lord Jay's mentioned um, on the committee corridor, and I think in both houses, and his committee as well, that will be the scrutiny away from the main um, cut and thrust of politics, but detailed forensic examination. Ministers have already come into committees. We had, um, uh, I think, the fisheries um, issue was coming up recently in one of the Lords' committees. Yeah. Um, George Eustace gave yeah. um, evidence and said, well, fisheries won't be a major problem. Well, that was not back pretty quickly. Um, so, and I think this, no, press have a role here as well, because are you going to report the less exciting, sometimes fairly mundane, forensic detailed examination in committees, or are we just going to have the statements and premises questions? Because scrutiny means not just us doing the work, but the public being aware of it. So we'll do our bit, and then it's over to you. Can't give any promises. <laughs> Richard, can you contrast for us? Uh, I mean, there will also be a parallel scrutiny process in the European Parliament of energy making. Will they get a better deal than the UK Parliament? Will the UK Parliament outperform them? I think the European Parliament is getting a better deal than the UK Parliament at the moment, yeah. so far mm -hmm. as it, it's yeah. got the ability to have uh, information and papers about negotiations as the process moves along. Um, and. It doesn't appear that the, the government is under any, um, any requirement to provide papers relating to the joint committee that's established by the, the withdrawal agreement, which, um, yeah, which does affect what Westminster will be able to find out along the way, although obviously the committee on the future relationship with the EU will try to pursue that as much as it can. Um, but yeah, what the European Parliament tends to do is use the expertise of its committee system. So um, it has an international trade committee and um, it uh, takes opinions from relevant committees on um, the issues at stake in the trade agreement. The European Parliament normally agrees those via the consent procedure, which is just kind of mm. up or down, yes or no vote. But the idea that it, I suppose what it tries to do is to involve itself as early as possible in the process to um, hold um, evidence taken sessions and gain as much information as it can and give an indication of how it might vote, um, such that it can try to achieve changes along the way. Um, and so what Parliament might need to do is to have some system of coordinating the expertise it has in select committees, um, to bring to bear on treaties in future. I guess this is looking forward to other international trade agreements that, um, that there might be. Um, but in that sense, yeah, there's, there's a structure in place that um, the European Parliament uses which could be beneficial for, for Westminster in terms of combining the expertise of various committees that are out there. And I'd also like to add um, to Banner Smith's point that um, I think the select committees, particularly those that, that we've done research on with my colleagues at Leicester in the House of Commons, um, have shown themselves to be remarkably cohesive, actually, in this whole uh, uh, debate, despite the divisiveness of this issue, um, with the exception of the exiting the EU committee, of course. But I think that, yeah, scrutiny probably will shift to select committees now, and there's a lot of um, debates that might be very exciting, actually, relating to legislation that's going through at the moment on environment, on immigration, on agriculture, etc. Um, and I'm sure they'll be reported on today in Parliament with, uh, with great frequency. But, um, but I think well, also your committee as well will be, yeah. could be kind of central to these sorts of negotiations. I mean, Angus, how much, can your, how much leverage do you feel your committee has if you think there's a problem in some forthcoming trade agreement and you flag it up? Um, suppose, to take Angela's uh, example, the government wants a clean agreement. Yeah, I think that's a good question. And when leverage isn't apparent at the moment, it's something that we're, we're sort of, it's an iterative process of engagement and trying to 
explain and think in the last parliament, uh, perhaps before they had the majority, the government were more aware of leverage. I mean, we used to have the classic parable, imagine you lose the election and it's Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister and Len McCluskey as President of the Board of Trade. How much parliamentary leverage and scrutiny then would you want Conservative government? And funnily enough, at that point, it was quite a lot. But I think uh, Barbara Smith is correct. At the moment, they don't really want engagement, which is bizarre given the size of their majority. You'd imagine their engagement in many ways wouldn't create a problem for them. Uh, and indeed, Parliament should be seen as a resource. It's a resource also for negotiators going in if there is a mandate. If it's clear that something would fly, you can say as a negotiator, imagine a negotiator in his 30s or his 40s or whatever, saying to or her, saying to his or her opponent, uh, this ain't going to fly back, back where I am. It can actually be a strength, it can be a lever in a negotiation. Uh, and a lot of these uh, agreements are going to need a lot of experts for very small parts of it. I mean, I think one that we can maybe relate to easily and quickly is maybe the, the, the farming area. And if, let's say, GM food comes in. Now, somebody might be in favour of GM food, but maybe against uh, hormone beef, or be happy with those two and very worried about the hygiene from chlorinated chicken, uh, the hygiene standards behind that. Um, so even in that area, there's an area of nuance uh, that you can have. But at the end of it all, I think the point was raised with the European Parliament, at the end of it all, um, and I think the European Parliament learned, especially from TTIP, the more open these are during the negotiations, the better ultimately from the, at the outcome. Because remember, scrutiny only is useful because it'll end the problems in the end. Imagine you rush to an agreement, you bulldoze it through, and then you find out you haven't scrutinized it. You then find out you've uh, agreed to something that damages your own industry. As, as has been said in the panel already, scrutiny is a resource. Government shouldn't be afraid of scrutiny. It's not about losing face. It's about making sure you get something bulletproof and something that is very good given the circumstances uh, for your own industry and your own society. And yes, my committee will, will have that role. We're, we're seeking the levers for that. Uh, we know that others will be doing the same. And I think the more scrutiny there is, the better to make that more bulletproof in the end uh, for all concerned. Lord Jay, you've been on both sides of this divide. You've been a, a diplomat before you were a parliamentarian. Is there a prospect that Parliament could influence the course of negotiations? Can a minister come back from Westminster and say, there's real trouble brewing over this, we'd better change that? Well, I, uh, you're, you're right, I've been on both sides of this, and I'm sure if I was still a civil servant, I'd be inviting ministers to keep parliamentary uh, uh, scrutiny to a minimum, because it gets in the way of the... Uh, of the negotiations, but of course I'd be wrong to say that, but it's extremely important that Parliament should try to exert whatever influence it can on the, uh, uh, on, on the negotiations. I, I think it's, uh, I mean, when you have a, 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 a government with a majority, a large majority, majority of 80, uh, the, the, um, the, the House of Lords can, House of Lords can do what it has traditionally done, which is actually to focus on the issues which are being not properly understood, on laws which are not properly drafted, and it can, in discussions with ministers, it can make serious points, which ministers can then go home and say, look, that was a good point, uh, and we need to take that into account. So I won't say it has no influence, but it's not going to have a huge influence on, on the negotiations. But it's got to try and organise itself. I mean, certainly, the, 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 the European Union Committee in the House of Lords, in which I sit, got a meeting this afternoon, which we're uh, talking about, at what point do we want to focus on these negotiations? Do we want to have ministers coming and giving advice to us before uh, or after each negotiating round? Do we want to have coming and giving um, 
advice to us before and after each meeting of the Joint Committee. So there needs to be a proper structure and ministers being called and agreeing to come at regular intervals. So you can, over time, begin to have the sort of relationship with ministers during the negotiations, which enables you to have some influence. But I don't want to over exaggerate what the influence will be, but nor do I want to say there will be none. Okay, so Mark, can, can I just nip sure. in? I mean, I think something to bear in mind at this point is we're talking about making deals and negotiations that probably aren't going to be as good as what we have at the moment. We aren't going to have the access into the European market that we've got at the moment. And the, the trade agreements we make with other countries will be fortunate if they are as good as the trade agreements the European Union already has with those other countries or will be negotiating with those other countries. And that's something that we should remember as well during this. When we're talking about uh, treaties in particular, Parliament's powers are somewhat less than they are in the making of laws because the process is that a treaty is mm. reached. It is, put, it is there before Parliament for 21 days. If someone objects to, to it, there yeah. can then be a debate, but yeah. the timing and duration of that debate is controlled by the government. So, it, it, Angela, is, is, is this fit for purpose under the circumstances now? I think for all scrutiny, is dependent on whether or not governments are willing to listen. Now, I spent uh, 13 years in the Commons and 10 in the Lords, and I think you know, people sometimes confuse the influence of the two. The House of Lords' influence is very much limited during the forensic examination. Do governments or the House of Commons want to be part of that? And I think there's been a sea change. One of the reasons I think the House of Lords was more influential in the last Parliament is the government had a lack of confidence of getting its business through in the House of Commons. That's changed. And, and quite often in the House of Lords, most things aren't decided by votes, but by ministers thinking, actually, you've got a good argument there. Yeah. If we fight it, we can lose. And I don't really want to take it back to the Commons because they'll see the sense of this as well. Once governments have big majorities, and particularly a new government with a big majority, there is a reluctance, I think, to rebel. And we'll see that today, I think, in the vote later on. Um, I don't know what the rebellion will be, but I imagine it's somewhat less than would be anticipated. And so you're going to see this change, I think, over time. It's also in this parliament, the people who were rebels are willing to be a bit more open-minded. They've been got rid of. So you've got a very strong block in a government majority there. So the influence that anyone can have, we'll have our own treaties committee. It's in the process of being set up at the moment that I think will be a really useful committee, but only as useful as people want to listen to the evidence it produces. And I think the point Angus made is quite an interesting one, to say that if we don't scrutinise things, we won't know what the problems are. I think the bigger danger is we will scrutinise things, we'll know what the problems are, we'll know what needs to be done, but we won't do it as a country, because that's not what the government wants. Absolutely. And that's a bigger danger, because I have to say, I will take no pleasure whatsoever in saying I told you so at the end, because mm. the consequences are too great for that. I suppose the cynical point here is that all oppositions are in favour of greater scrutiny and listening to Parliament, I include internal oppositions in that, right up to the moment when they become governments. Possibly. It's a bit of a cynical approach. You dare say you know, <laughs> you're being cynical. But actually, if you look at individual ministers, the best ministers you ever get in either house are those who are prepared to say, actually, I'll take this back and have a look at it, mm. or can I come back to you, can I think about this, and not just read from their brief, and I know I've been a minister, I've been at the dispatch box, and you've got your folder, and you open it up, and someone's got an amendment, and it says at the heading, before an explanation, resist. Um, that's the first word it will say. And as a junior minister, you go, I'm told to resist this. The good ministers, the brave ones, and the ones that actually fly the highest in the longer run are those who say, 
actually, I'm not sure I want to resist this. Tell me the elephant traps. And actually, with the civil servants who think they're doing their master's bidding, tell them to resist, they challenge that. And they're prepared also to say in committee on the floor of the House, can I take this away and come back to you? That's real scrutiny. So I think, whereas there will be people in government that never want to be challenged, this clean bill approach that I think is relatively new, um, there'll be others who will want to get it right and that will be important to them. And you may know, we've seen already some ministers who have left um, government office. And I think part of that is they don't want to be part of the clean bill brigade. Now, Richard, there, there is, of course, a difficulty, isn't there? If you get a treaty agreed and then Parliament decides there's a problem with it, it's, oh, sorry, traps, we've got to reconvene this international conference and renegotiate because there's trouble on the select committee has said. Um, so there, there is a genuine reason why this is actually quite difficult. And in the light of that, I, mean, I suppose, is, is Parliament sort of careful how it treads on these things? Yes, I mean, I think, I think this is a very good point that Parliament will struggle to influence this, partly because of the changes in the withdrawal agreement bill that take away the meaningful votes on this. But also, as you say, I mean, quite a lot of Parliament don't have the ability to unpick these sorts of international trade agreements because it takes so long to agree in the first place. Um, and so I suppose that the lesson for Parliament is to try and get their views in the process early on. I mean, the European Parliament did reject the ACTA, the Anti-Counterfeiting Trade Agreement, um, some time ago, which was quite a remarkable thing to do, insofar as a lot of countries had signed up to it. And that kind of took the EU out of the possibility of signing that. So it's partly about, does a Parliament have a credible threat to reject a deal if it's got a yes or no vote on it? Um, and at the moment, I think it doesn't have a, a credible threat um, to do that because of the majority would expect the government to, to get things through. So in that sense, Parliament will, will struggle with this and it doesn't have much power under the, the CRAG Act um, to, to get things done. And I suppose, Angus, uh, if you are going to reopen trade deals, you know, so battle-ariser, uh, Ernie, Ernie Bevin, if you open that Pandora's box, you don't know what Trojan horses will fly out. There may be other things that get reopened in the process. Well, the most obvious thing is if the other side is going to open the trade agreement uh, for you and do you a favour, you're going to have to concede something. So immediately you've got a weakness. Uh, if you've signed a trade agreement and you now think, ah, I want to change that, well, what are you going to concede for me to agree to enable this trade agreement to be opened again? Uh, and that is a huge problem. And I think well, I want to pick up something Angela Smith said about the, the, the weakness of Parliament at the moment. I think the big majority, is, she's absolutely correct, makes rebellions less likely because to rebel, you have to have a chance of, of, of succeeding. To have a chance of succeeding, you have to build a coalition. To build a coalition of 80 to overcome the majority is difficult. So the numbers just don't make rebels at all. In fact, I would go further and say, you know, Tony Blair was criticised for having a sofa government. I don't think we've even got cabinet scrutiny at the moment. Sajid Javid showed his utter weakness as well as a Chancellor of the Exchequer. We've probably got government by Dominic Cummings, to be honest, with his advisor Boris Johnson is what we've got. Uh, that could be what we have. And there's another danger we have at this moment is that Neville Chamberlain came back waving peace in her time. I've got a real fear that there's some in the government who want to come back waving a piece of paper saying trade agreements in her time, and will then later the bundle will be unpicked. And if you have to go back to somebody else and say, will you change it? That's a good deal for me. I don't want to change it. What are you going to concede? So I'll open this negotiation again. You're already in a weak situation. Scrutiny is not something to be feared. It's something that we should all be urging on the government for our goods, their goods, everybody's good. Because if it's wrong, as Angela Smith said, uh, Baron Smith, um, there is no joy anybody will have in telling the ceramics industry or whoever, I told you so. I will just... Um... something to that as well, though, because I think when we talk about scrutiny, it's at what stage it starts. One of the things we tried to do very on on the earlier negotiations was to say that you give... Parliament should give 
the Prime Minister, then Theresa May, a negotiating mandate. And if you've got sort of a broad parameters of what's acceptable, when you bring something back to Parliament, you've got a broad understanding they're going to be in agreement with that, you know, you know where you stand to start with. There is something to be said on treaties as well, listening to Parliament very early on so you know what is acceptable and engaging early on. If you wait until you're halfway down the road and it's almost agreed, then you're absolutely right. The, the room for Parliament to do much about it is severely limited. But early engagement, early intervention and genuine engagement could make this work much more smoothly. I think the fear we all have is, is the government open to that kind of engagement or is it more determined to sort of, well, there's a deadline, we've got to meet that deadline. How we do that um, is really just sort of a mechanical exercise to get it done rather than to engage to get it right. And just as a, a final brief thought before I open up to questions from the audience here, um, it's worth underscoring, I think, that these treaties may have very substantial, will have very substantial economic impact on the UK and therefore on daily life in a way that maybe international agreements reached in the 20s and 30s when the processes for uh, processing all this through Parliament were devised, perhaps they weren't quite so significant for daily life. Um, Lord Jay? Well, I agree with that. I agree very much with that. But I, I do think it's important not to see these negotiations as just economic, because I think that, the, in particular, the security relationship is hugely important. Uh, and you're only going to need one person being killed somewhere in Britain and somebody saying, well, that's because we didn't have the sort of relationship which we needed to have with the EU afterwards. It's going to bring this thing right up in the front, to the front again. Uh, and and I, I rather regret in a way that the relationship has been so focused on, on trade and on services and on the economy because I think that the other aspects of it are as important and probably, if anything, more important. Richard? Yeah, I think um, it's worth looking forward to how these issues might be scrutinised by Parliament in the future and I think um, there are a couple of different models we could draw on but one is if we are looking at kind of a free trade agreement um, like a Canadian one then you don't end up with a sort of EU specific committee in Parliament but you have an international trade committee that deals with these issues that, um, that might be quite broad ranging um, or you have a, a closer deal and the, the example that you can look to there is Norway although clearly we're not going to have a deal like the Norwegian deal uh, but where you have a much closer attempt to get hold of documents and be part of COSAC Committee of National EU Affairs Committees uh, across the EU. Um, but I think what, what we will need and what looks likely to happen, because there are suggestions of it on both sides, is some kind of committee that brings together members of the European Parliament with members of Westminster, uh, the Westminster Parliament too, to talk about the broad range of issues that are going to continue to be important in the UK's relationship with the EU. And I think it's important not to think of it as a static thing. It probably will evolve over time, and it will take some time to yeah. reach mm -hmm. agreements across a wide range of issues, not just trade in goods. And those agreements don't necessarily have to remain the same over time either. So that dialogue between parliaments uh, could be important. Angus? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, sort of, final words on this point. I mean, a number of years ago, we didn't really know or think about trade deals very much at all. Um, we're now become really interested in trade deals like kids become interested in a new shiny bicycle. We still don't know much about what makes the bicycle go round and what the, where the ball bearings are and all the rest of it. So there's degrees of, of technicality and complexity uh, within it. And I think the one point I often say to people is people are talking about these new shiny trade agreements. Well, how many gears does the bicycle have? How fast does it go? What's the GDP gain? What is the gain in the trade deal you're going to have? And from what I can see, 
if we get trade deals eventually, as a UK, get trade deals eventually with just about every country in the world, probably the GDP gain over those decades will be about 1.4 to 1.6% of GDP if we're being very optimistic. And that's after, remember, forgoing the 6% of GDP that we would have got and gained had we remained where we were. Uh, so i just throw that out there as a reminder of where we were. What we knew about trade, de trade deals and the discussion we would have had on this four or five years ago would have been a very short conversation indeed. Angela. I want to pick up on that security point again because trade is the one that we probably have more infrastructure in and we do have committees and looking at. But a few years ago, under the coalition government, a decision was taken that we would opt out of all EU policing and criminal justice measures and only opt in to those that we thought were relevant to the UK. Um, and this was debates that went on in Parliament. I was then, before I was um, leader in the House of Lords, I was the Home Office uh, Shadow Minister. And we spent weeks and weeks discussing the detail and the minutiae. And we ended up opting back in to everything that was operational, everything that was relevant to the UK. And in fact, we didn't opt out of anything that we were actually part of. And so the decision was taken then that on policing, criminal justice and public security, we needed to be part of all those measures. Now we're going to have those discussions all over again. And I fear that we may not come to the same conclusions that we came to just a few years ago. So I think there's real dangers in sort of not accepting so much of our relationship with the EU is integrated into our lives. Consumer protections, for example, environmental protections, those are currently getting far less attention than the trade issues. And I think we just have to recognise all of those will have implications for our economy. And all of them, consumer protections and environmental protections particularly, will have implications on trade as well. Ask the farmers about chlorinated chickens. Well, let's uh, take some questions from the floor then. Um, who would like to uh, be first? Let's have a look. Sir, just wait for a second for the microphone to appear. Um, Could I instantly get you said who you are? Oh, yes. Uh, I'm Neil Brady. I'm just another wonk, like so many people here today. Um, I thought that in the last three years, the European Committee in the House of Lords did some excellent reports, which were very good scrutiny as they went forward. And I hope that that will be part of the forthcoming arrangement. But the main issue for me is the lack of um, commentary about the involvement of the devolved administrations in this process. Where's the Joint Council of Ministerial Arrangements going in terms of the scrutiny of these discussions? Because, you know, we have devolution, it's a part of our constitution, and yet it's been systematically ignored during the legislative process and after the event. So can we have some comments about how that might play a useful part in the scrutiny of the next... Um, of the of the agreements, uh, Michael J. Is it possible to build in uh, more effectively the views of the devolved assemblies? Well, I think it's a governments? really I think it's a really good question and a really important point because we've been talking essentially about Parliament, i.e., Westminster. But the the, the it's not for me to, to, to say with uh, Angus here, but with the uh, the the importance of 
uh, parliaments and assemblies in Edinburgh, Cardiff, Belfast, where I was uh, last week, as well as Westminster, absolutely crucial. Because a lot of the, dis the, the, the difficult issues which will arise in Brexit will be those issues which have hitherto been handled in Brussels, but will come back to London, but will involve devolved uh, issues of one kind or another, the so-called common frameworks. Now, how they are going to be handled over the next year or so is, I think, it's quite a tricky question. At the moment, there is agreement that there, there should be um, uh, discussions amongst the four governments, but there need to be stronger arrangements than there now are between the four parliaments to ensure that there is a proper scrutiny of these issues which affect all four of our uh, countries in different ways. So I think it's a really important question um, and, and, and one which I think is, has not been given enough attention in the uh, work about the implications of Brexit so far. Richard, strings on the union if that's not done? Um, yes, I think this is a really contentious area because we have areas of uh, policy that are being brought back to the UK but where some of them will be dealt with under retained EU law, which will be statutory instruments to come back to those. Um, and others are, are important areas where um, power has been devolved to uh, legislation, to, to legislatures in, in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. And so the Sewell Convention in particular is this business of whether Westminster should legislate for areas that have been devolved is, is, is coming under a lot of strain. And the question of the, the idea of the word normal and what the word normal means uh, is important here because the government doesn't normally... Um, uh, legislate in areas where um, power has been devolved, um, but this is coming under strain in the current um, situation. Angela? Well, there's not much you can add to that. I think the great fear has been for a ministerial power grab that as powers are repatriated from the EU, where do they go? And it's been quite clear the government would like to hang on to as much as possible. And I have to say it's been a bit of a battle until now to get these issues addressed. Um, so it'll be an ongoing battle. Um, the relationship, I think, between the devolved administrations and the opposition has been pretty good in most places because we have dialogues and we have um, communication channels open. I'm no, more optimistic now we've got the Northern Ireland Assembly up and running again because that's been a really missing voice in these discussions. Yeah. And it's good how the Welsh Government and the Scottish Government, despite political differences, largely can work together on this because the, the principles are the same. But I, I don't think it's an easy one to resolve. Um, and I think all the points that Michael Jay has made are really relevant on this one. And I don't know the answer. I just know it's going to be a bit of a battle and a complex issue going forward. And it's going to need the government to be reasonable and understand where um, devolution lies and what devolution really means. It's not an opportunity for Westminster Power Grab. Uh, Angus, there are, of course, cynical folk out there who will say that with uh, independence referendum two possibly coming down the track, uh, maybe the Scottish government would prefer the grievance to the solution. The cynical folk might well have a point. Um, <laughs> um, they might not as well. Um, one of the points is I think we've established earlier that this government uh, doesn't want to really engage with Parliament in Westminster. So I think Mr. Brady asked a very good question there. And the idea that they want to now engage with the pesky devolved parliaments as they see them is a pure nuisance for them. Um, and if you follow Michael Russell on Twitter, you'll see the disengagement and the disrespect that he feels has been Scotland's minister on this area from the Scottish government. Um, you know, if you look at the Welsh, then hell sheep, um, there's something traded in Wales for a benefit in the southeast of England. You know, where does that leave Wales? And what I'm left with at the end of all this is that the EU was fully behind Ireland and they had the support of the entire EU institutions. 
Uh, we see Scotland in the UK, it's too bad Scotland. Uh, suck it up, we all voted for this as a UK, too bad uh, if you don't take it. Uh, tough. Uh, and what we see, to me as a Scottish National uh, Party MP, is there is an, an EU that's respectful of its members, constituent members, and a UK that's highly disrespectful of its members. Now that's going to lead to an inevitable tension, and we know that the UK government is running scared from an independence referendum at the moment, and no wonder with the last three polls given a majority uh, for independence. Ireland was phase one of the UK's shift. The UK isn't even 100 years old yet. It dates from December 1922. Scotland is going to be phase two of the change of the UK, and it's probably this issue that may actually be the lever on the fulcrum of Brexit that, that moves Scotland to catch up with Ireland and its Nordic neighbours. Right, more questions, please. Um, lady over there. Thank you very much. Hi. And if you could say again who you are, please. My name is Delvali Willie. I'm a law student at Emerson University. My question for the panel is, with a government of a majority of 80, what, how likely will the success of Parliament's courtesy on the Brexit process and the official relation with the, with the EU? Uh, Michael? How likely is Parliament to have influence in its scrutiny uh, of the EU? Right. Well, I think it'll have... Uh, I, 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 it's a good question. It'll have some scrutiny. Uh, and I'm, I I'm not speaking for the House of Commons here. Uh, I think the House of Lords will have some effect, but not a, uh, a, a, a major effect on the... Uh, on, on the negotiations. I and mean, I think, as we said earlier on, the really crucial thing is to focus on the substantive issues to point out where the government is apparently getting things wrong, not thinking things through properly, and then to uh, get them to take account of what is being, uh, the comments which are being made, take them into account. That, that, would, be my, that would be my view um, uh, on that. Angela, with a majority of 80, the government just bats away criticism it doesn't want to hear? Um, it can do, and you'll be part of this as well. Come back to the BBC. Um, <laughs> but it, <laughs> majority of 80, the parliamentary arithmetic is, if the government's got all its side on board, it can get through what it wants to get through. And I think that's the, the arithmetic of it. The House of Lords could never stop that in the House of Commons. All the House of Lords can do and I think we see scrutiny as slightly different, is try to be useful. We can mm. point out some issues. We've got, um, sometimes we'll disagree with the government, we'll agree with the government, you'll have the party political arguments. But interestingly, all our select committee reports have been unanimous across party from those of any party and none. Now, that can be a resource for the government <laughs> that can use to change tack or take on board what's said. The challenge will come when there's votes in the House of Commons, and I think... My sense is, at the moment, we'll say maybe a rebellion this afternoon of some kind, we may see that change, but scrutiny is only as good as those that are willing to listen to it. And I think there is an obligation that where we can highlight, if the government fails to address problems and issues that have been highlighted, not just in, we don't agree with you, we think that's wrong, but actually a forensic argument made of why something should be done differently... The government fails to heed that. Scrutiny is an ongoing process. It's not a one-off incident, and that has to be highlighted moving forward. Now, you still hope, and there are ministers who do want to listen because they don't like getting things wrong. And my experience of civil servants as a minister was the last thing a civil servant wants is their minister to be embarrassed because that reflects on them and their career prospects as well. 
Um, but at the end of the day, the buck stops with the minister and the prime minister. So I, I think a key will be how willing is the government going to listen? And also, I think, you know, coronavirus, you know, we've only mentioned this a couple of times today, but I think that's going to have quite an impact on the attention and resource government can put into negotiations. And will the government say, we're going ahead and we've got this deadline date, come what may, or will it make an assessment of whether they can meet that deadline or not in taking into account what else is happening and other things they have to look at? So, you know, it is a challenge. It's probably more one in terms of tactics and that for our House of Commons colleagues, but we will do what we always do and just hope that government will take note of some of the things that we will highlight in a cross-party way of where the issues are that need to be addressed if the government's going to get Brexit right, rather than just meet a deadline. Richard? Uh, yeah, I think that there is a fundamental difference now, which of course is that we don't have minority government anymore, we have single-party majority government, and this means that <coughs> to an extent, so that committees can do what they want, but the government doesn't have to uh, respond to, to what well, it has to respond, but it doesn't have to agree with what select committees suggest. Having said that, I think that select committees have raised their profile in recent years, and parliamentarians have spent the last few years kind of discovering the sorts of tools they can use to try and influence government. A lot of those weapons are much more blunt when you've got a single party majority, which does make this more difficult. But Already, although the House of Commons Select Committees have only, the membership of those has only just been agreed, um, I counted last night five different inquiries that are Brexit related which have been set up already. Um, and I'm probably out of date with that because I think some more have been put on websites today. But um, this is, I suppose, an indication of what's, uh, what, what Select Committees will try to do. Um, and of course, the, as, as Sir Bill Cash was mentioning earlier, the European Scrutiny Committee has this vital national interest principle that can apply to, uh, to get debates on, on the floor of the Commons, which as I understand it, is different from what it could do before, where it could request these sorts of debates, but the government didn't have to give time for them. Now they're statutorily required to do that. Ang Angus, you were chair of your select committee in the previous parliament. Do you feel less powerful in this one? Uh, yes and no. I think, firstly, um, trade, trade goes live is a sort of a phrase that I've had with, with the staff and the, and the um, committee in, in, in recent weeks. Uh, things have changed. It's less theoretical now. It's going to become more practical. So as it becomes more practical, minds, minds will focus. Yes, less powerful question. I've pointed out of the, of the 80 majority. And Boris can do any Brexit he wants and 43% of the vote. But my only rider to that is Boris doesn't know exactly what he wants to do. He's not good with detail. So Boris is sitting there going, I can do what I want, but jings, what do I, do? What do I want to do? Uh, he certainly doesn't want to have queues at Dover and Calais and have shelves empty in the way we've seen in the last weekend. That's not very good for a government to cause that. And I was just pointed out again, uh, the Home Office side, yes, he wants to walk away from this, that, and the rest of it, but then actually when you look at the detail, he wants to be back in with all this, that, and the rest of it. Uh, will he walk away in June? No, he wouldn't walk away in June. Um, so there you go, that's a, a prediction from me, because unless sense is completely departed from this government, uh, he will be negotiating and talking. Um, to, to be the author of your own downfall as early as June would be really bad news for him. That might start rebellions in his own party. I mean, 80 as a coalition could come together very quickly when their constituents are complaining about empty shelves. Right, well, we've got a, just a few minutes left before the end of the session now. Uh, so what I'd like to do is take two questions, starting with the woman in the back there, please. And if, if, again, you could shout out your, your name as well. Thank you very much. My name is Irina van Wieser. I'm a former Liberal Democrat, member of the European Parliament. Um, uh, Dr. Whitaker, you rightly mentioned that um, we need 
a dialogue between the European Parliament and, and Westminster. And by the way, the European Parliament, of course, has much, much greater scrutiny and power simply because there is no European government. And, um, and it is also true that the committee structure in the European Parliament would help greatly to understand what is actually going on with the negotiations. Forgive me, could, could I ask you to move very question. quickly to a question in a very short time? It? The question is, we, we lost the institutional framework to do this. So, yes, I think the dialogue should be there. What do you suggest are the structures to make that happen? Thank you. Okay. I'd like to say one more question, please, <laughs> uh, at the front there. Uh, Paul Reynolds, um, what scrutiny is going on now and will go on in the next few months over the deals which are being negotiated, some of them behind closed doors with third countries? I'm thinking especially everyone in Washington knows that there's negotiations going on behind closed doors in a kind of panic mode. Mm -hmm. What scrutiny is possible in this regard? Okay. Um, Michael Jay. Uh, on the first question, I think, uh, yes, there needs to be... It's, it, there, needs, there needs to be <coughs> continuing and stronger, in a way, uh, Westminster EU, uh, uh, EP parliamentary um, contacts. Uh, and certainly, I, I, again, I can't speak for the House of, House of Commons, but as far as the House of Lords is concerned, there is a, 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 um, a, 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 not just a willingness, but um, a determination to continue to take part in the COSAC meetings, to take part in meetings of the European Parliament, uh, in particular over the next uh, nine or 12 months. And that, there are mechanisms by which that can be done, and that does need to be, that does need to be done. So that's on the first question. On the, uh, sorry, what was the second question again? Third, third party. Uh, negotiations with third countries uh, from uh, Japan to US, especially the US with the, everyone knows the negotiations already going on very quickly behind closed doors. Well, the, I, I, I mean, I, certainly as far as we're concerned, there does need to be a parliamentary scrutiny of those agreements. There have been some suggestion from uh, government departments that um, they are prepared to accept that and that they will open themselves up to parliamentary scrutiny. That, however, rather remains to be seen, I think. Okay. Angela Smith. Well, in terms of the... You know, there's not much you can add to what Michael said, but I think there is... There's a willingness to engage and to scrutinise, but the structures... The government aren't going to change and bring in new structures that make scrutiny... Um, more detailed, are harder for them. So I think we have to use all the mechanisms, Charles, we talk both questions, all the mechanisms we have at our disposal. Our treaties committee will be looking at some treaties, yes. but I think you know, it has been a real shame that the international trade bill, we've been waiting for this legislation, I think it was started and then paused. It's been going on now for some time. And some of that work, initial work of how we could look at scrutiny, could have been done as part of the debates on that bill. We've been waiting for it. Um, and I don't think we've got a date yet when it's actually going to happen. So... It is going to be, I think, we're going to have to force scrutiny on government and use whatever mechanisms we have available. I don't anticipate any new mechanisms. Richard? I'll just, in, the, uh, in terms of brevity, I'll just address the first question. I'm not sure I can answer the second one. But, yeah, I think, I mean, the, the, the sort of positive point on the first question is that the political declaration on the future relationship in Part 4 talks about a dialogue between the European Parliament and the UK Parliament. And the European Parliament has recently called for an association agreement with the UK which normally involves a, a parliamentary delegation between bringing the two sides together. Um, but that would all be for after we've got some kind of deal with the EU. Um, beforehand, I agree with what's been said already, that uh, it's, it's hard to imagine we'll see any changes to the, the amount of scrutiny of negotiations that we, we see at the moment. 
Yeah, just in the interest of brief, I think... We had a terrible situation, as we've, I think, Sean from the committee is here uh, today in the committee staff, and I think we found out more about the Korea uh, negotiations from the Korean side when we put it through Google Translate than we're finding from the, from the UK side, and we might find out more from the EU-UK through the U European Parliament, which is take back control, we want sovereignty, rings pretty hollow when, when these realities happen. I think we've maybe got to understand a bit more of the mindset that, that's worried about uh, scrutiny, and I would look over to Lord Jay, maybe at this point, who was, who was the poacher and has now become the gamekeeper, who I think earlier on he said that was, he would advise ministers not to, and now he would advise them to do so. Uh, we've got to maybe understand the mindset on the UK side that is resistant uh, to doing it well and to doing it properly, and who instead want to save face and do it quickly. Well, thanks very much to my panel, Angus McNeil, Richard Whitaker, Angela Smith, Michael Jay. A fascinating and stimulating discussion. I'm sure these issues will be back to haunt us. They will now follow a short intermission. I believe Chalk Isis will be on sale in the foyer. <laughs> <laughs>